or, you know, buy all three, I guess. <laughs> Go crazy. Um, I'm going to bring up to the stage now Kate, um, who's going to talk a little bit, hopefully, like with more enthusiasm, <laughs> like spirit than me, about the uh, Penn Prison and Justice Writing Program. And Robbie's coming too. Yes? Great. Please give a big round of applause for Kate and Robbie. Thanks, Rosie. Uh, I'm thrilled to see such um, a good turnout for this event. Give yourselves a round of applause for giving a shit. That's not, it's, it's a difficult topic, so I know it's hard to have enthusiasm. We're talking about difficult things. My name is Kate Meissner. Thanks for the intro, Rosie. I'm the program director of the Prison and Justice Writing Program at PEN America. I'm Robert Pollack. I'm the Prison Writing Program Coordinator at PEN America. We have long titles. Uh, Pen America, if you don't know, we're right around the corner, so we love that we get to do this with our neighbor housing works and with Rosie's vision as well. Uh, we're an organization at the intersection of human rights, literature, and freedom of speech. Our program has been in existence for four decades, I'm really proud to say. Uh, we send, actually I'll let Robbie talk a little bit about the prison writing program and then I'll pass back for the justice aspect of our work. Sure. Uh, our, our program was founded in the wake of the Attica uprising. Uh, writers that uh, decided to do something about the conditions inside prison, especially regarding education and having voices be heard. They started the prison writing program in which they provide mentorship um, with prison writers who are writing in fiction, nonfiction, drama, memoir. Uh, and they engage in letters back and forth with prisoners all over the country. It's one of the longest running programs of this type. We also have an annual contest where prisoners can submit their work and get it published nationally and get recognized. In some cases, this has led to people on death row being off death row. In some other sad cases, people who have won have never received their congratulations letters um, because they were executed. So this is the kind of the gravity that we deal with. Um, in order to honor the work of the men and women that submit to us, we attempt to treat their work as if they are writers and not just incarcerated or prison writers. They're, they're people who write who happen to be in prison. Um, we have a book that's over on the table. It's also up in the uh, racks here. It's an anthology of the award-winning work from last year. Uh, we're really proud of it. It's a collaborative work between artists and illustrators on the outside and the writers on the inside who've kind of poured their hearts out in these winning pieces and their honorable mentions in there. Uh, we're very happy to be working on a new one with this year's upcoming winners to be announced. That's we also provide a handbook for the writers in prison. I have to mention that. Um, uh, we're very proud of that it's distributed nationally. We send out about 500 a month to beginning writers who are like, how do I write a sonnet? You know, this is how you do it in the book. Um, but we're very glad you're all here. Thank you. And lastly, we, uh, we also have a brand new Writing for Justice Fellowship. It opens April 1st, if there are any writers in the audience for next year. We award uh, pretty major honorariums, between five and $10,000, commissioning writers emerging and established to create projects that are illuminating critical issues connected to mass incarceration, such as tonight's work. Not a fellow of our program, but in the same vein. Uh, so in that uh, on that note, uh, we are trying to do more advocacy, more events, more being in the national conversation about ending mass incarceration, and we're very proud to be partnering on this event, and I know you're really ready to hear uh, Kyle be in conversation about his book, so I think we can probably turn it over to our guests. Yeah. Hey, how y'all doing tonight? Thanks for coming out. Thanks for coming out. Uh, I'm Albert. I'm a reporter at BuzzFeed. This is Kyle. He's a reporter at the Washington Post. Uh, Hello. He just wrote this great book, uh, which I'm so excited <laughs> to talk about and honored uh, uh, to be here. Um, I, re I remember when, when I first heard, um, when Ricky Jackson first got uh, exonerated a few years ago, um, I think that might have been before we even met in person. I think uh, so, yeah, I think it was before. But, but Kyle and I, both, we both kind of came up in the alt-weekly uh, scene, kind of knew... Ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. kind of <laughs> knew of each other, had like editors in common. Um, and, and I remember when I heard about that, and, and I had read Kyle's original story in the Cleveland scene uh, about that case, 
um, I just remember thinking like this is this is why we do what we do. This is why we we do journalism is to there's no greater impact than bringing freedom to somebody who otherwise would not have freedom, right? Um, Absolutely. So that being said, you know I've been a criminal justice reporter. You've been a criminal justice reporter. Um, if you guys haven't been criminal justice reporters, part of the job <laughs> is getting a bunch of uh, letters and and uh, folders and files from people in prison who tell you who are trying to convince you that they're innocent so that you will write about this case I assume you probably got a lot yes yeah. as well what was it about this one um, that made you pick it up and decide like this is worth pursuing this guy might actually be innocent no that's a great question because I actually remember and I was working at the Cleveland scene which is an alternative weekly like Albert mentioned you know, similar to the Village Voice, I guess, in style, or Village Voice, R.I.P., in style, in, in length, and in tone, and in, in the type of articles they did. But uh, I remember when I first started working there, I would open up a desk, an old desk drawer, and just find tons of prison letters. And I write about this in the book. That it just seemed for years these had just piled up because they are very difficult, and they are easy also to ignore, unfortunately, for a lot of reporters. This particular case in 2011... I was approached through an attorney I knew who I had worked with on some other stuff, uh, a kind of famous Cleveland civil rights attorney named Terry Gilbert, who came to me and said, I've got this case, this guy, he says he's, he didn't do it, you know, the rest, but I think there might be actually something there. Would you be interested? I can't do anything legally as a lawyer because the case isn't at that point yet. Would you be interested in working on it? And I remember he said it could take a lot of work, but there might be something there. And I was like, yeah, have the guy call me. And, you know, I hit send on that email. And within probably 15 minutes, I got a phone call from a guy named Kwame Ajamu, who told me that in 1975, he, his brother, and his best friend had been wrongfully convicted of a robbery and murder. And it was all on the basis of the testimony of a 12-year-old boy. And it sounded remarkable. Uh, I agreed to meet with him. And honestly, one of the first things that made me believe him is when we actually sat down and got together is he had this big box of documents, which if you're not a criminal justice reporter, you probably don't know, but that makes our hearts like flutter <laughs> um, because that shows that there's actually something here. You know, there's actual legal documentation to the story. And when I had that first meeting with Kwame Ajamu, he just kind of also exuded a lot of credibility to me because he wasn't trying to convince me. He wasn't desperate that I believed him. He was basically like, look, this is what happened. At the time, he had paroled out and he had gotten married. He had a job. He owned a house. So his life had moved on. But he, his, his brother and his best friend were still incarcerated for this crime that he said they didn't commit. And I, I thought that the fact that he wasn't trying to like sell me on it was really, really pointed to his credibility. You know, this is just what happened. I could take it or leave it or believe it or not. Um, so, so those were kind of the weird factors that went into my head when I was thinking about it when we first met. I feel like any reporter that writes about anything, you write the story expecting it's going to change the world and lead to all these changes once people see the reporting you've done and the injustice you've exposed. Um, but usually, like 90% of the times, it doesn't lead to anything. Nobody really cares. Um, was yep. there ever a point in the reporting process where you, you got the sense that this could actually lead to something really big? And if so, at what point did it happen? Well, when I first reported on this case in 2011, I learned very quickly through the reporting that these guys were innocent. And the reason was is because I compared the witnesses' testimony. There were three separate trials in this case, and I compared the witnesses' testimony in each trial, and it was all over the place. And in some of the places, it was physically impossible what this guy, what this boy, had said had happened. On top of that, I had found witnesses who had actually been with the guy, my guys when they were supposedly committing this crime. So alibi witnesses, what we'd say in the court. And then I had found a guy who actually saw the murder happen, who knew these guys from the neighborhood and knew it wasn't them doing it. So like from a journalistic point of view, I thought I was, I had it made. I thought this thing was bulletproof. And then no, you're totally right though. The story came out in 2011 and absolutely nothing happened. It was crickets. And I felt actually pretty fairly devastated because it wasn't about me. It was I had gotten really close to Kwame Ajamu, the guy who had been out, who I'd been working on this story with. 
and I just felt that maybe either I wasn't a good journalist or journalism wasn't good enough to kind of crack the apathy that has kind of corroded over a lot of people's feelings on these issues. So I uh, went on thinking that, you know, I'd given it my best shot. I couldn't do it, and I didn't know what else would work in this case. Unbeknownst to me, the Ohio Innocence Project had read my reporting and had taken up the case. And, uh, and as I say, I describe it as like I carried the football as far as I could down the field, and then they had to pick it up and take it the rest of the way. Where, where were you when you found out the exoneration was going to happen? What do you remember about that moment? Well, that was crazy because I had, you know, I was feeling all down on myself and stuff. I'm a bad reporter. Journalism sucks. And really, you know, I wasn't going to pay the bills by doing that as a reporter. So I actually took it out in the city and I was like, fuck Cleveland. <laughs> like, <laughs> like everyone here sucks. They don't recognize great journalism when they see it. Um, no. No, but I, I did get really sour in the town. I eventually moved to Miami Beach to take a job at the Alt Weekly in Miami, the Miami New Times. And just out of the blue one day, I got a phone call from the Ohio Innocence Project in early 2014, and they said, you know, buckle your safety belt, basically, because the witness in this case is recanted. We're filing on this case. And at that point, I got to call Kwame, who I had become very, very close with, and deliver that news. And it was kind of the great honor of my life to be able to, to deliver that message. Um, but really, nothing was, nothing was for sure at that point either, because even if you have a witness who recants the testimony from a case at this point decades old, there's no, you know, there's no surety that that case will still be overturned. And, and this case uh, did not involve DNA evidence, which, which as you know, mentioned in the book, the, the overwhelming majority of cases that are exonerated, that the Innocent Project even, even takes on, are ones that have DNA evidence because you, know, you can't turn away from science, right? It's a lot easier. What was it about this case that, one, uh, led the Innocence Project to pick it up despite the lack of evidence, and two, what evidence emerged um, that was able to lead to the exonerations despite the lack of DNA? Well, that's a great point, and I think that's actually a point worth repeating, is that because the Innocence Movement, which was founded here in New York, it was very focused on DNA for a lot of good reasons. Because, like you said, you can't argue with DNA. So if you're trying to convince a criminal justice system that this criminal justice system convicts wrong, uh, innocent people, you need to have that bulletproof scientific evidence to be able to say, see, you're getting this wrong. So a lot of Innocence Projects that have grown around the country have been very much geared towards DNA, and the Ohio Innocence Project was not alone among that. They, most of their cases were DNA-based. But they also took non-DNA cases, but I think you know, they had a file on this case before I was ever involved, and they were focused on DNA aspects of this case, which were an incredibly small and really insignificant part of this case. There was a... I mentioned it was a robbery homicide. It was a money order salesman who was shot. He was doused with acid and shot leaving a convenience store. And there was a paper cup that had the acid in it. And so the paper cup disappeared like right away. Like that shit was in a garbage can probably like a week later. But the Innocence Project was very convinced that they needed to work on the DNA and so they would look at the paper cup. The paper cup, as I said, was gone and according to people at the Innocence Project, it was after reading my reporting about the witness in this case, this little boy whose name was Ed Vernon, that was when they decided that they really needed to focus on the testimony, that the DNA in this was not. And it's a really big gamble because courts don't like witnesses who come back either decades later or days later and say, I lied in court, because the judicial standpoint is that, well, like, how are you trustworthy? I mean, you see it with Michael Cohen today. I mean, like, you know, they're saying, you're, you said you lied then, and now you're saying you're telling the truth. How can we believe you now? And the courts are very, very strong on that point that they don't like witness recantations. But I felt in my reporting and in, in the Innocence Project, the Ohio Innocence Project came to see that that was the only area of kind of sunlight in this case. That was the only place where there was any room for trying to get these guys out. I, I, I think, uh, uh, so Ricky Jackson was one of the three uh, men who were wrongfully convicted here. It was 39 years. He 30, was so Ricky Jackson, when they were finally exonerated, he had been incarcerated for 39 years continuously. And that was at the time the longest wrongful conviction in U.S. history. What, what failed here in the system? How did it fail so badly? What happened? 
Well, it's impossible to talk about this without talking about race. I mean, these were three young black guys in Cleveland in 1975. Every police officer who worked on this case was white. The prosecutor's office was white. The judges were all white. The juries were majority white. I mean, race was a huge factor. You're also, though, talking about Cleveland had been embroiled in a lot of racial conflict, like many American cities. There had been a race riot. There had been uh, a very famous shootout, which I talk about in the book, called the Glenville Shootout, which a lot of people have kind of forgotten about. But it was in 1968, a group of black militants opened fire on a bunch of Cleveland police officers in a neighborhood called Glenville in Cleveland. And this was before the Black Panthers were kind of had a national reputation. And so if you're a white moderate sitting at home watching TV, what you're seeing is opened armed racial warfare breaking out in American City, which had never happened before during the civil rights era. And so that really raised a curtain on a new era of the civil rights movement, particularly in Cleveland. It heightened the relationship and the animosity between the police department and the African-American community. And so that was in 68, so you're talking about seven years later, these guys are sucked into the criminal justice system. I mean, it's still very much in everybody's mind. It's still very much in play. Speaking of white people and the role they played <laughs> in this story, uh, you are a white person as far as I know. Um, and you're writing yep. about you know <laughs> three black people in this story that is very kind of racially fraught. W what sort of considerations did you take? Um, what was that like? How did you kind of make sure you didn't cross any lines, say anything wrong, do anything problematic? What was that process like for you, and how did you make sure you got it right? No, I mean that's a great question, and it's important. It's an important question to consider, and I'll answer it with a story. So when I first met Ronnie, or when I first met Kwame Ajamu the guy who I met in 2011, and he told me this story with the big box of documents. I'm all excited. I, I did believe him, but probably maybe like 1% or maybe 5% of me held back from fully believing him at the time, and that was because I felt that the criminal justice system, I felt that the criminal justice system couldn't really convict innocent people and then have them sit in jail for decades and decades. I felt that there had to be these safety nets or guardrails within the system that if someone was actually wrongfully convicted, you know, within s a certain amount of time, the appeals process would flag them and they'd get out. And that was so stupid of me to think that. <laughs> um, and very quickly, I realized how stupid that was as I was reporting this story. And very quickly, I realized that the only reason I had thought that was because I was white, suburban, middle class, and I had never come into contact with the wrong end of the criminal justice system before. So that really kind of shook me in a way about how I approached these stories, about telling stories about communities different than mine, and I realized that you kind of have to check your perspective at every um, step of the way. And so I hoped, writing the book, that I did that, and I was at least mindful, and I, there's a great book by William Finnegan from The New Yorker, I think it's called, do you know this book, Cold New World, or, yeah, it's a great book, but, and again, another white, you know, New Yorker writer who's writing about uh, low-income communities of color mostly. And he, what I love about that book is he interrogates his own perspective at every step of the way within the book. And I thought that, that I had to, like, interrogate myself and my own perspectives in the same way. And I, I hope eventually that that uh, did it in a way that was respectful to the stories. What I think one of the most beautiful aspects of this book I think is is um, not just in a literary sense, but kind of in a repertorial sense, was that you don't just kind of present this as an uh, isolated systemic problem. You frame it within this tapestry of institutional failures across the city. Um, where does the criminal justice system and, and the things that it did to black residents of Cleveland fit into that wider picture of, of, of institutions in Cleveland? Well, I mean, I think that we incorrectly look at wrongful conviction stories. I mean, you all probably know about, you've probably seen them on TV and like the 6 o'clock news or CNN, where it's like such and such has gotten out of jail after X number of years, and people say, oh, what's the first meal you're going to eat, or what, you know, what's changed the most in the five seconds that you've been free, you know, this really shallow way that we approach wrongful conviction. 
and it goes even beyond that, I think, that most of the narratives we reach for when we talk about wrongful conviction, we tend to focus very specifically on individual cases. We say, this person, because of you know, a pileup of bad luck or circumstance, was sent away for something they didn't do. But we don't look at them systemically, and we really don't consider them in a, the broader kind of, in a wonky way, a philosophical way as a wrongful conviction representing really the, the, most per, the biggest perversion of our values as a country if we're a country that's supposedly ruled by law. So I really felt that I wanted to expand it. I knew that this story, I knew that there were many ways to look at this beyond this. And it got very, very specific. I mean, in terms of like the city of Cleveland, but this went for a lot of American cities, you're talking about a time in the early 1970s when the federal government, in reaction to the riots in the civil disobedience of the 60s around the civil rights movement, the federal government just dumping millions of dollars in federal grants on local police departments. That's just basically escalating, you know, what we now call the war on crime. I mean, that was all fed by the federal government. And in particularly in Cleveland, after I talked about the Glenville shootout, I mean, now they're sitting on a pile of federal money that they can use. And of course, that really rolls right into the drug war, really rolls into what we now call you know, the age of incarceration, which were still, these are still the things that we're trying to untangle today. The, uh, there are three main characters that's in this book, obviously. Um, as a writer, I just kept thinking how challenging it would have been to sit down and be like, I have three main characters who all went through the exact same thing. <laughs> what, how, how did you figure out how to balance them as characters without being repetitive while still giving all of them their due? How did you kind of go through that? No, that's a great, that's a great, great question. Yeah. Um, so I decided that, especially early on, I would give each guy his own chapter. So the first chapter after the prologue is very much sunk into Kwame Ajamu slash Wiley Bridgman at the time, his perspective. A later chapter gives you R Ricky Jackson's perspective. A later chapter gives you Wiley Bridgman's perspective. Um, and I really tried to sink each chapter into a particular perspective of someone I was talking about. It didn't, like, obviously when you, like, conceptualize this stuff in the head, you think it'll all, you'll pull it off seamlessly, and it wasn't. So <laughs> don't think every chapter has a, has a specific perspective, because sometimes they get mixed up. But, you know, I knew that there was a chapter I wanted to do about Ed Vernon, and from Ed Vernon's perspective. I knew, like, I hate writing in the first person, but I knew that I had to write my own way in this story. And so I knew that there would be chapters or two from my perspective. Um, so I just tried to find that kind of anchor point for every chapter and hope that it kind of led things along. Like I mentioned the football analogy, that kind of was a guiding thing in my head is that everybody in a way moved this story forward narratively. And it was just who was, who was I gonna, who was gonna be my person in each chapter to move it forward. Uh, this is a book about wrongful conviction. It says so right on the front. Um, so as soon as you open the book, you know what's going to happen at the end. How <laughs> Spoiler <did> you, alert. <laughs> how did you maintain the narrative dramatic tension? Uh, what was your kind of method going into that, your mindset going into that, knowing that as soon as you crack the book open, you know what's going to happen at the end? How did you write it to keep the reader going? Well, I just knew that there were so many like dramatic... You know, if, if the central narrative, guys didn't do it, guys get out of jail, if that was the central narrative, um, I knew that there were so many, like, byways that I could go off that were super interesting historically and, and from, a, from a real big-picture perspective. Uh, for an example, you know, I do one chapter about Ed Vernon, who was the witness in this case, the guy who testified in all the trials and sent these guys, these innocent men, to jail. So in the chapter about him, I talk about how after he had done this, as he got older, you know, he became a really bad uh, crack cocaine addict and lived on the streets of Cleveland basically as a crackhead for a couple decades. But right when he was doing that was when the drug war was taking off. And Cleveland was really embroiled in the whole, like, dramatics of the drug war. And so I thought that it was really, you know, his chapter, it, was, it made sense to take, like, a, a detour into talking about the drug war nationally, but also in Cleveland and how that was playing out across the country. Uh, similarly, in a chapter about when, uh, I think it's chapter four, when the guys initially go to jail, 
uh, they're sentenced to death row. They were sentenced to death for this crime initially. But at the time, there was this whole really dramatic legal fight on a national scale at the Supreme Court about overturning death penalty statutes. That was really fascinating to me, and I think it's kind of a forgotten... Now we just assume that we have the capital punishment, but there was a time in this country where we had this incredible debate about capital punishment, where capital punishment statutes were actually being overturned. And so I thought it was really fruitful to go on a detour down there and talk about that whole drama. And in fact, that was eventually why these guys, their death sentences were converted to life in prison was because of a Supreme Court decision. So I I just always knew I had to keep my eye on that main narrative kind of spine, but I I knew that there was a lot of rich texture there to go elsewhere. and there's many, many detours. I think every chapter was kind of built around what happens with the individual case, but then what was happening around nationally that sinks in with that first, that original narrative. Uh, the title of, of this book obviously um, uh, references the Kendrick Lamar, uh, legi- uh, you know, a classic album, uh, Good Kids. Is it? I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> Pure coincidence. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, the uh, which, you know, and it, and, and it so, uh, one, I feel like one of the challenges oftentimes as journalists writing about problems that have existed for a long time is trying to make people still care, trying to make it still feel fresh. Um, so in, in addition to the very contemporary title, how did you go about um, trying to make this story, which began 30 years ago, um, uh, feel fresh today? Well, no, I mean, the title is exactly why. Um, you're you're 100% right. I like wanted to have that Kendrick Lamar reference in the title to kind of like plant a flag in the here and now because I was terrified that people would read this story as old news or, you know, from a less enlightened part of our our national history. But these are issues that are very much there today and I almost didn't have to do it because as I write in the book, you know, Wiley Bridgman and Ricky Jackson walked free after 39 years, both uh, on November 21st, 2014, and within 24 hours, Tamir Rice was killed by the Cleveland police, you know, less than a mile or two from where they, from the Justice Center, where they walked free. It was within 24 hours. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was within 24 hours, yeah. Maybe 48. Wow. No, it was, it was that week. It was that, well, he was shot on Saturday. These guys got out Friday. He was shot on Saturday, and Tamir actually died on Sunday. So, yeah. So the symbolism of that of just the confluence of historical events was so powerful to me that it was really clear that these obviously are the issues that we're still dealing with today. So I almost didn't need to hit it over the head too much because I thought that that was really clear. And I do think, you know, what really surprised me in the book, I was talking more about the way that the war on crime starts with all these federal grants you know, basically supersizing police departments. I didn't know about any of that, but that just fed into the more into this idea about how this is still what we're untangling. I mean, we're, when we talk about prison reform and, and criminal justice reform today, what we're talking about is untangling the things that happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's what we're still dealing with, so. Yeah. Forgive me <laughs> if, this, if this question gets too deep into the media weeds, um, but but as a fellow former Alt Weekly writer, I got to know. You know, I w- w- I, this story was born in an Alt Weekly. Uh, as I read this story, if I didn't know you, I would have been like, "Oh, this guy wrote for a fucking Alt Weekly at some point." <laughs> Just the kind of the, the noir, blunt, yeah. uh, very kind of like direct, stylist, stylized elements of it, right? Um, and obviously, today there are very there are few there are maybe half as many Alt Weeklies as there were when we got started. Yeah. Um, what role did your experience at, at, the, at the scene, at the Miami New Times, at Broward New Times, at all the all weeklies that you worked, uh, play in the way you knew, the way you thought to write this book, the way you knew how to write this book, beyond just the obvious that you wrote it at an alt weekly? W- what role did that experience play in, in how you wrote it? Well, it just it it's just a different type of journalism, I think that you know we're really in in danger of losing, especially for younger of us who, you know, not everyone can get that prized internship to Harper's or the New York Times or the Washington Post. And for me, you know, all weeklies, it was an avenue that I could, it was like a world I could actually touch. And, you know, the free license, like the, the, the attitude of creativity of going after the big stories, um, I mean, Albert knows this, but 
these types of stories, criminal justice reporting, is really hard to get people, especially editors, to get interested in for a lot of reasons. I mean, they're very time intensive and they uh, take a lot of resources and take a lot of months. And so it's hard to get people, editors, to green light them. But at All Weeklies, I feel like there's an attitude of very much green lighting it. And also, you know, there's this whole debate now about the objectivity of journalism, which you know, is way above my pay grade to get at. But I know you probably had this experience too. At Alt Weeklies, you're very much taught that like there are bad guys and you have to take a swing at them. And that makes you a better reporter because if you're going to say such and such is an asshole, your reporting better be there to say such and such is an asshole. And that's why I think you've seen a lot of a generation of reporters, you know, yourself included, others who are here, uh, who have gone on to more mainstream outlets from alt-weeklies because the reporting and writing is so good. And we're definitely losing that. Like, if I had worked at the Cleveland Daily, the Cleveland Daily, the Plain Dealer, I would never have written this story. No one would ever have let me write a 5,000-word story about a, a case from 1975, you know? Um, and that's what we lose when we lose those publications. I think one of the fun little uh, Easter eggs in the book <laughs> is when you mention how uh, you went from you took your talents from Cleveland to Miami around the same time LeBron did? Yeah, well, he, he, he blazed a trail, but then I <laughs> went after him. That was when I was in my, like, screw Cleveland, no one cares here, I'm moving to Miami. What? Uh, so I, I grew up in San Francisco, yeah. and then many years later, I returned to the city as a reporter for the All Weekly there, SF Weekly. What was it like reporting on the city that you knew so well from a different perspective? What new things did you learn about your city? I mean, it made me fall in love with it, really, in a, in a weird way, and also get infuriated at it in a weird way. Um, you, someone once told me that you, it's a, a special experience reporting on your hometown, right? I think you know, you'd probably find that as well, because this place that you thought you knew has all of a sudden been made completely new to you, and uh, it kind of makes you... I know, for me at least, it made me feel a little complicit in what was happening downtown and was happening in the neighborhoods in the black communities because I hadn't been so aware of it growing up and I felt that you know my ignorance of that and stupidity was a complicity in keeping it going. So that was another kind of like check to it. And there's a, I start the book off with this Rebecca Solnit quote that I think really sums that up very well. Um, so it really kind of opens your eyes I think in a new way and makes it a new place. Uh, so I think we're ready to open it up to questions because I'm out of good ones. Um, <laughs> also, before I forget, everyone should watch the Today Show tomorrow morning, right? Because uh, Kyle's going to be on it. Which I is will be on tomorrow. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Unless uh, something happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to not get Kyle too I'm drunk like tonight so that he can wake yeah. up tomorrow. Uh, who has questions? Well, there's this, I can't, I'm not commenting about Donald Trump, but, <laughs> yeah. um, but there is a whole, there's actually a psychological phenomenon that's really written about by a lot of people in the innocence movement called tunnel vision, which was really, and it happens, you know, it, it's not as hard to conceptualize as you think, because it's just this refusal to admit that you're wrong about something. Uh, you know, it might happen in your daily life uh, with your spouse or whatnot. You know, you refuse to say, uh, no, you know, no, I'm, no, this is the fastest way to the grocery store. No, it's this way. It's like, no, mine was still fast. But, you know, like you can see the seeds of that type of psychology. And particularly when you're dealing with matters of life and death and prosecutors and police, you can understand why they would just be so hooked into their, yes, I was right. This guy was wrong. I can't be right. And it's actually really shocking to hear, like you said, when DNA science says, well, you were actually wrong, many of these officials and people who are paid by the state still will maintain in this weird, bizarro world that they are right and that something's wrong with the science. 
um, I don't know what the cure to that is, <laughs> but that's a very that's a phenomenon that's been written about w- um, among the innocence movement very very much. Anybody else? I mean, mostly, thanks for that, because that's good perspective, for sure. I think mo- where I see the most resistance is among prosecutors, because the prosecutors, you know, the police build a case, and then the prosecutor, in a way, is supposed to be an arbiter of that case, whether or not there's enough e- evidence to bring this to trial, to actually legally, legally speaking enough evidence. And so you see it way more with prosecutors, I think, that they're more resistant to admitting errors. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. So when I had done the original reporting on this case and when I kind of realized how stupid I'd been about the court system, I was about 25, and I'd been a reporter for maybe three years, so I was fairly green. And it was a formative, I think, like experience about how I thought about doing reporting in this job. And um, it always stayed with me, I have to say. Like Even if, even if they, these guys had... Unfor- if the terrible thing had happened and this case had never come to the conclusion that it did, and I wasn't up here talking about a book, I still would have had that experience. I will say, though, that the experience of writing it because you're just sitting in a room for so long made me kind of sharpen those thoughts down to a very kind of more articulate sense. And so I think the writing process really helped me clarify those thoughts and now when I report, it's very, very, very much in my mind when I'm thinking about these things. Um, but I was a little early, like I mentioned, I was, I was fairly young in my career. I was kind of like not, you know, it's true about journalists is we kind of get jaded over time and, and crusty and, you know, whatever. But I, I don't think I was as crusted over or jaded at that point. So I was still kind of figuring out how to be a reporter and figuring out how to do this job. So I think I was really lucky to have that experience so early and meet this man, Kwame Jamu, and, and work on the story about him and his friends and brother, uh, that was really important and critical for me. There's some. Oh, yeah. So they, well, so. Um, you know, Ohio is one of the few states, and it's about half of the states, have statutes where they, the state provides money for wrongful, um, for exonerees. In Ohio, I think it's about 40 grand for every year you were um, away, plus in inflation. So they were all given a, a little bit of good, you know, good, enough money to kind of make a life. And as I mentioned, Kwame Ajamu had already been married, and uh, had a house and they bought a bigger house out kind of in the suburbs and Wiley Bridgman bought a house Ricky bought a house <laughs> Ricky got married uh, has ha, like takes cares of his 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 wife has a couple kids they are all kind of like a big family um, so they're all doing well financially speaking and they have a lawsuit against the city uh, that's still ongoing but uh, in terms of psychology I mean I think that they're very you know, like the other day I was talking to Kwame and 
he mentioned, you know, I know I have post-traumatic stress disorder. And today we were talking, he's here in New York for the Today Show thing, and we were talking about, uh, he gets up every day at 5.30, and I was kind of ribbing him. I was like, man, like, you gotta get some sleep. And he's like, well, you know, I've been in prison, you get up at 5.30, and it's just something I can't unwind from my head. I'm always gonna get up at 5.30. And they, so they have those marks on them still. They still bear that experience. So... You know, they've made the what's most remarkable about these men, as I talk about in the book, is that they've not let this single thing define them. They've very much made a life and an identity for themselves outside of what was done to them. But they uh, they still, you know, they still carry that and and know that they carry it and know that it's more of like a badge of what they've been through than something to be ashamed of, I would say. One thing I'm curious about, um, you mentioned uh, the Finnegan book and, and the influence that it had. W were there any other books that, that kind of were role models for this or that were kind of I influences either reporting-wise or structure or literary-wise? Uh, that's a great question. I love those questions. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I know you're a big David Simon fan of his books. I am too, particularly about like the empathy in his reporting and writing. Um, also, Adrian Nicole LeBlanc, you know, Random Family is a huge huge influence on me uh, it was kind of weird blending first person with third person with history and kind of like what you would you know it's not like a clean genre book in terms of that so like there's a Charles Bowden book called Down by the River which is about the drug war which is incredible that kind of does the same thing um, Timothy Tyson who's um, he wrote the book about Emmett Till it was a famous book that came out like last year where the woman who had accused Emma Till finally came forward and said she had lied. His previous book to that is this amazing book called Blood Done Sign My Name Blood Done Sign Your Name, which uh was about him growing up and reinvestigating this lynching that had happened in his town. And it kind of blended all those things together. So those were more kind of like I was trying to find a stylistic temper to blend different types of modes of reporting because you you know in traditional we have a history book you have a first person memoir you have a book of reporting and I realized that all these things were playing into the book and so I need, knew I wanted to kind of like mix it up so I went with books that had mixed it up well if that makes sense that's a big English nerd question <laughs> You can answer that as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts. But, I mean, I just loved, you know, the Alt Weekly was just like this thing you picked up. Everyone picked it up. You'd walk into the bar that was open at 11 a.m. and all the day drinkers would be there, you know. and Or you would see, and then you would see it in the courthouse. You'd see the lawyers drinking or eating. <laughs> you'd see the lawyers reading it. Um, I mean, in some courthouses, too. Though. Yeah, that's very true. But it was just kind of this communal thing. Like, everybody picked up the scene or the Riverfront Times or the Village Voice. And it, they had this wonderful reputation of, you know, you're not getting BS in the all-weeklies. Now, sometimes, some all-weeklies, I think, um, didn't fulfill that promise as well as others. But, you know, online, I just think it lacked, because also what's, the problem to me about online stuff is that it's, all-weeklies were so hyper-local. You know, like, we could run stories about this, you know, corrupt prosecutor or this judge who everyone knows is, you know, an idiot. But you wouldn't be able to do that in an online setting, I guess unless it was a hyper-local kind of online outlet. But I just think we get we get away from something, right? I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You're in a similar, you know, fellow traveler on this, so. Yeah, I mean, we're all having such a good time, so I hate to, like, bring some dour, you know, <laughs> ideas to the picture. But um, the, the the fact is there, there, just are, there are fewer jobs. There are fewer local reporters than there have ever been. I think national reporting is better than it's ever been in the history of journalism. I think national reporting is fantastic. You guys at the Post, Times, you know, the Marshall Project, ProPublica, us of Busby, like there's a, 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 an exceptional amount of uh, national reporting out there right now. Uh, and part of that is because of the online stuff, right? So like in, in a lot of ways, a lot of the, the the jobs, like I work with a lot of people, young people at BuzzFeed, people in like fresh out of college at BuzzFeed, who would have gotten jobs at the places that me and Kyle did, you know, five, ten years ago, but instead are getting jobs as national breaking news reporters at BuzzFeed or at the Post or elsewhere. So what has been lost and which has kind of 
if there's a if there's any kind of image for optimism, I think it's that you know like ProPublica is doing a thing where they're partnering with a lot of local yeah. papers. Um, I think the Marshall Project does some things where they partner with local papers. So th th there is like a, this model for national publications partnering with local publications. But like the sad truth is that it's a lot of these things are just gone, and there's no um, sense of how they might come back. Right, so like Cleveland Steen's still going, Riverfront Times, which is a St. Louis paper that I got started on, is still going, but the Village Voice is not. Um, is Broward New Times still going? Zombie version. Zombie version. It's a zombie uh, version. Yeah, I mean, it's like one of those versions where it's like, it's still up, but there's no one writing for it. So. And like SF Weekly, which is where I also worked, is, yeah. is also zombie version. So like there's, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad for two reasons. It's sad for the you know reporting aspect, which is that there's just like, way fewer there's just much less accountability uh, uh, on like local institutions than there's ever been in like you know since like the birth of america and like ben franklin's first like broadsheet <laughs> right um but the second sad part of that is, is that there's just fewer places for young reporters to go you know like i think whatever blessings kyle and i have had in our career uh was largely tied to the fact that we were like 23 years old writing 10 6,000 word stories a year for a paper in like five blog posts a fucking day <laughs> uh, in like the early days of the internet where you just get a lot of reps and you get a chance yeah. to, 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 to one, make mistakes at a smaller scale and two, like when my first job in St. Louis, you know, I could request an interview with the mayor like and I was like a 22 year old reporter and get an interview with the mayor you know and like if, if I was coming up and I was a reporter 22 year old you know with BuzzFeed or Gawker or the Huffington Post or whatever you know and I'm competing not I'm not trying to get stories with the St. Louis mayor I'm trying to get stories on you know the president or whatever you know it, it's you're not able to get the experience of knowing what it feels like to make an impact right you learn how to aggregate and you learn how to chase stories that everybody else is chasing but to really learn how to how to chase stories that make an impact, you know, like Kyle's did, obviously. Um, the local scene is really where that happens. Yeah, and just to echo that, though, um, you know, talking about reps, like this book came from a story that I wrote, one of my 5,000-word stories, you know, and I know that a lot of them were crappy, but, you know, this was a good one. And, I mean, and Albert wrote a great book, Never Ran, Never Will. Thank you. Yeah, that came out of an alt-weekly story. That came out of a Village Voice cover yeah. story, right? yeah. So, like, you lose that type of, like, literary springboard also, I think, for books, so. We can also, we'll be talking, we can talk about this all night, too. <laughs> we know this. Yeah. For sure. No, I mean, it's personally really troubling for me as well. And I don't know if he, if you've read the book, it sounds like you've read the book, but that part, I don't put you on the spot, but it sounds like, but, um, you know, the way that I wrote it and the way that Ed conceptualizes, I should say that when Ed, he got sober and then years later in a, and just one of those weird stranger than fiction happenstances. He was working at the city mission in Cleveland at the intake desk and in walks Wiley Bridgman and puts down his ID and is like, I've just been paroled out of prison. And so that's literally Ed Vernon's past, like literally coming back to him and face to face. And Ed eventually said, told Wiley, you know, I, I'm Ed Vernon. And Wiley was like, we have to, tell somebody we have to tell the courts we have to go to the police we have to do something to tell the tv and ed didn't do it he said he wouldn't do it and eventually he got wiley kicked out of the shelter and wiley eventually was re-offended re and sent back to prison the way ed describes that is his his sobriety was so fragile because he was fairly recently sober and he knew enough about triggers and stuff like that and he knew if he had to relive this that would 
re-trigger his drug addiction. Now, I don't know if that's a fair explanation. I, I hem and haw, I still think about it to this day, really, about that. I mean, the moral, I, I will say that I think that Ed Vernon, if, if the scene story if, didn't come out, my first story didn't come out, if his pastor didn't kind of put pressure on him, as you can read about in the book, if the Ohio Innocence, Pre- Ohio Innocence Project wasn't knocking on the door, I think Ed Vernon would easily have gone to his grave without revealing the secret. Now, I also think it took an incredible amount of courage for him eventually to make that step. So it's very complicated. And I think about it, I do actually think about it all the time, whether or not it's justified. So I don't think I've reconciled it. And I'm not sure, is, I, I don't think I can, you know? I mean, it's so complicated because I can see where he's coming from about his addiction stuff. But then it's like, dude, like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, you, really? Like, you're an adult now. Like, you should be able to, recon- you know? But. At the same time, seeing Ed actually finally come forward was incredibly powerful, and he really took a beating on the witness stand when he recanted his testimony from the prosecutor, and he held firm, and it was remarkable. So it is complicated. (laughs) I'll say that. Well, they have a very rigorous kind of process, and they had a file on this case, on Ricky, but it kept, in, in the book, you know, I interviewed the attorneys who worked on the file before I ever got involved, and they said, you know, something about this case, what actually it was, it was Kwame Bridgman kept, call, or Kwame Ajamu kept calling them and saying, hey, I heard you've looked at Ricky Jackson's case, like, what are you going to do on it? Like, what can you do? And they were like, this is pretty weird. You know, we don't really know what to do with this case, but his friend who's already out keeps calling about it. So that was like to them like a sign that maybe there was something there. Maybe one day it would just take something to break. But they were very focused on the DNA angle. So they just really kept, they didn't close out the file and throw it in the cabinet. They kept it on their desks. They kept doing it. They kept it open, but they really weren't doing anything on it. It just was really at the bottom of the stack. And then when my reporting came up, they pulled it out, realized that they should focus on the witness and kind of doubled their efforts in that direction. I do think it's fair. I do think it's very, very rare because they have such a rigorous vetting process, and because they're so geared toward, and they have their own standards. And usually, those standards are so geared towards DNA. So the fact, you know, Brian Howe, who was the attorney who I didn't, I uh, did a discussion like this a couple of weeks ago in Cincinnati. You know, he had said that the first thing he did when he got this case was read the reporting I did, and realize that that was kind of a roadmap for how they moved forward. But I think that's very rare in terms of this types of work. So. Thank you, everybody. Thank everybody for coming. And thank you, everyone, for coming as well. Um, and thank you, Kyle, for your amazing work in helping exonerate these men. Like, literally so cool. <laughs> Um, if you're interested in learning more about mass incarceration and you know how we can resist it, there are three more events in the series. Um, right now, Kyle's gonna sign books, um, so if you want to head up that way, um, and if you have any more questions, you can obviously ask him as well. Um, but yeah, another round of applause for Albert and Kyle.